Gene Wilder's favorite song, Ella Fitzgerald singing uh, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. He died uh, yesterday morning at his home in Stamford, Connecticut. Died at the age of 83. His uh, nephew uh, confirmed his death in a statement that his his nephew released. Uh, It is with incredible sadness and blues, but with spiritual gratitude for the life lived, that I announced the passing of husband, parent, and universal artist Gene Wilder. Almost unbearable for us to contemplate our life without uh, without him. The cause was complications from Alzheimer's disease, which he coexisted uh, for the last three years. And the choice to keep this private was his choice in uh, talking with us and making a decision as a family. And uh, a, a typical, I think, of Gene Wilder was not a question of uh, the stigma of having, of having Alzheimer's, which a lot of people have. You know, I don't want anybody to know I, I have Alzheimer's. I don't want people to know I'm losing my mind kind of thing. Uh, it said in the statement that the reason that he didn't want his condition uh, be made public uh, is that it wasn't vanity, but so young children that would smile or call out to him, there's Willy Wonka, would not uh, then be exposed to an adult referencing illness. And he simply couldn't bear the idea of one less smile in the world. Now, normally a statement like that, I look at, you know, you know me being a cynic. I go, oh, come on. You know, a typical pablum uh, release from the family. Let's sit down and uh, figure out something wonderful to say, and we'll print that up. I think in this case, uh, it's, uh, it's true. He uh, really, really was that kind of a person. And the story is when he passed, he was holding his family members' hands, uh, which I'm assuming if he's dying from Alzheimer's, he had no idea whether he was holding anybody's hands, but the family was there, and that's more for the family than anything else. And a statement went on, went on to say, the music speaker, uh, which was set to random, began to blare out one of his favorites, Ella Fitzgerald, and she was singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow as he was taken away. Now, that one I didn't know. Uh, I thought he had called for that, and it was one of his uh, favorite songs. It just happens, according to the statement, uh, that it was serendipitous that that happened. And he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma in 1989 he was diagnosed, and obviously he didn't die of that one. And right through the end, before uh, the Alzheimer's took away his mind, uh, which is one of the horrors of Alzheimer's, uh, he continued to enjoy art, music, and being with the family. And it's no secret, and I think you would agree, he was one of America's foremost uh, comedic actors And uh, he was neurotic in a very funny way in his films. Uh, He told Time Magazine in an interview in 1970, uh, my quiet exterior used to be a mask for hysteria. And after seven years of analysis, it just became a habit. So I think what he's saying is there's more reality than not in the roles that I play. It really isn't a whole lot of acting, although he put forward this wonderful persona. He was in The Producers, hilarious, uh, playing, uh, uh, what was his name, Bloom? Uh, oh, God, was Zero Mostel. I forgot. Uh, oh, what was his first name in the film? Uh, you would think. All I can think, all I remember is Bolly Stock and Bloom. Bolly Stock and Bloom! Uh, the uh, great producing team of Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder. 
And uh, he was in the producers, Blazing Saddles. Leo, the, Leo, uh, Bloom. Leo Bloom. Thank you, Blazing Saddles. Uh, just beyond hilarious, Young Frankenstein, and then the Silver Streak Stir Crazy movies, which I'm not uh, a huge fan of. Uh, it's the uh, Mel. Um, uh, it's those Mel Brooks. Yeah, Mel Brooks. Uh, the producers, Blazing Saddles. Those are the funniest ones that I think uh, were uh, just his very, very best work. And this is him talking about uh, his work. Well, maybe a couple of years ago I could have shown you something, but today, look at that. Steady as a rock. Yeah, but I shoot with this hand. Are you saying that I put an abnormal brain into a seven and a half foot long... 54-inch white gorilla! I can't pass for black. You tell him. I didn't say I was going to make you black. I said I was going to get you on the train. Skip! Skip! Okay, no more hitting. Did you hear what I just said? No more hitting. Skip! All right, turn around. You want to stay late tonight? I said turn around! Genuinely hilarious. Just one of the funniest guys. Now, he was most widely known for his portrayal of Willy Wonka, which I thought was one of his weakest performances, uh, my opinion. But out of a film that didn't do well at all, it bombed at the box office, came this character, which was his favorite, and at the same time, the one he is uh, most known for, and uh, this is uh, part of that. The lifetime supply of chocolate for Charlie. When does he get it? He doesn't. Why not? Because he broke the rules. What rules? We didn't see any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in his photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses herein and herein contained, etc., etc. Fax mentis incendium gloria culpum, etc., etc. Memo bis punitor delicatum. It's all there, black and white, clear as crystal. You stole fizzy lifting drinks. You bumped into the ceiling, which now has to be washed and sterilized, so you get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir. Hilarious stuff. And then uh, the singing that he did. And he was a terrible singer, too. Uh, he had a, a horrible voice. But, by the way, who am I to say someone has a horrible voice? Look at the irony on that one. But his character was spectacular. Coming back, uh, a little bit about his early life. And a great line uh, about his name. And it was, and I went, yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. Be right back with that one. KFI AM 640, uh, Bender. KFI AM 640. Need a man who was brave and true, with justice for all as his aim. Then out of KFI the AM uh, 640, handle here. August 30th on a Tuesday, uh, the death of Gene Wilder. A look back at uh, an extraordinary career and a pretty extraordinary guy. Uh, he was born Jerome Silberman. Really? You think he's Jewish? 
uh, to a Jewish family in 1933. His dad had immigrated from Russia, a typical immigrant story. Uh, his mother had rheumatic heart disease, so uh, she had all kinds of health problems. And uh, a doctor warned him, that was young Jerome at the time, don't ever argue with your mother. You might kill her. Try to make her laugh. And he said he never forgot how important that was to him. Grown men are confident of what they do in life because of, of what their mothers told them that they were good at. And when I knew I could make my mother laugh, I felt I could make someone else laugh. And that's all I'm doing now is carrying on the tradition. So uh, when he uh, a little bit older, he went to a California military academy for a brief time. Then he went back to Milwaukee and became involved in local theater. And his first uh, role is Balthazar in a production of Romeo and Juliet. Then he graduated high school. He studied communication and theater at the University of Iowa and then was drafted into the Army. Those are the days when we had the draft. And he worked as a medic in Pennsylvania. Then he moves to New York to begin his acting career, which uh, is what actors in theater and usually very few people at that time particularly went right into film. They were in uh, theater and then they moved over if uh, the jobs came up and they had a want to do that. And so he took a variety of jobs, which everybody does. Uh, a fencing teacher, didn't even know could fence. And he did all kinds of jobs while he was studying acting. I'm sure he wait, uh, did uh, waiter work. I mean, they all do. And then age 26, uh, he changed his name. And he said he couldn't quite see a marquee reading Jerry Silberman as Macbeth. So he took Gene from a character in a Thomas Wolfe novel. He took uh, Wilder from Thornton Wilder. And then he started getting parts off Broadway and Broadway. And then in 1967, his film debut, Bonnie and Clyde, uh, which was uh, one of those iconic films. And he was told both by agents and other actors, and let me tell you, you're not going to get good roles because you don't have that kind of a face. People wanted human faces, human beings. Clark Abel, Rock Hudson were wonderful faces. Tyrone Power was my favorite. But then there was a time when people said, I want a a face that looks a little bit like me. And that's what I've got. A face that looks a little bit like them. (laughs) And he won Academy Award nomination, Best Supporting Actor and the Producers, one of the funniest films that have ever, ever been made. And that led him to Willy Wonka. And in 2002, he was asked about that role uh, by Larry King. Willy Wonka, which is still many people consider yeah, their yeah. favorite film. How did that come about? I was offered the part. I had read, read the book. Oh, you know what? Let's, uh, yeah, let's cut that one because I I, we don't have a whole lot of time, and I want to talk about Gilda Radner, who is such an important part of his life. Uh, he was married four times, and uh, the love of his life, uh, the connection that was made between Gilda Radner and uh, Gene Wilder is the stuff of legend. And uh, he, to- uh, he actually talked about his relationship uh, with Gilda Radner. Gilda was different in this respect. She said, I'm here for a purpose, and that's to get you to wake up and smell the coffee, not be off in the clouds someplace, listening to Mozart or Jacques Brel, but to be here with me. And when you feel anger or you feel something on your mind, you say so right now, here and now. I'm not a perfect woman that you've been searching for all your life. I'm just little imperfect Gilda. And if that's what you want, a real love, I'm your best bet. And that changed my life. 
And uh, the story of Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner, as I said, is a stuff of legend. They were both married at the time, and they left their spouses for each other. And they married in 1984, and that relationship was only five years because she ended up dying of ovarian cancer. And uh, that was uh, that, that became a huge, huge story. She had gone public with that, and uh, after she died in 1989, uh, he helped found the Gildner Radner Ovarian Cancer Detection Center in L.A., and he became uh, a lifelong spokesperson and supporter of ovarian cancer research. And then uh, in 1991, he was married again, uh, this time to Karen Boyer, and uh, they were together, still together, uh, after 25 years when he died. And uh, probably the best song he ever did. And it's, oh, uh, yeah, you can do the Willy Wonka stuff all day long. Nothing like Young Frankenstein and putting on the Ritz. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? <laughs> Frankenstein singing. Uh, that was so funny. And uh, it was just wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, he is going to be missed for sure. All right. Uh, coming up, uh, new drone rules. Uh, Chris Oncarlo, our news, uh, direct, uh, newest reporter here on KFI, is joining us in studio. And I was just watching a video of him uh, flying the drone. And he didn't kill himself with it, which is uh, pretty impressive. We'll be right back with that story. KFI AM at 640. KFI, an iHeartRadio station. As an astute KFI listener, you've probably heard about dialing pound 250 for breaking news tips, to reach advertisers, or to give traffic tips. We know it can be hard to remember phone numbers or to write them down, especially when you're driving. So when you're asked to call pound 250, just listen for the keyword that follows. You get the idea? Oh, yes, I've got it. We hope pound 250 makes it easier for you to connect with KFI. Pound 250. Just listen for the keyword and be in touch. That's a good try on uh, the music, right? What do you mean? Go fly a kite? Yeah. Yeah, same as a drone? Yeah. I wanted something that also was a little tonally different. That's true. That's true. Mary Poppins. We should actually, uh, you have to throw in some musical, don't you? Yeah, I try whenever I can. No, I get it. It works. It's all for you, baby. Uh, No, I understand. All right, uh, Chris on Carlo. Oh, are we going to interfere our... uh, Talk about musicals with Chris Carlo. Yes. All right, new rules. FAA finally came down with rules on uh, small drones, commercial drones. And I just watched uh, two videos of you, Chris, uh, out there in the park uh, flying these drones. So tell me what the new rules are and then uh, talk about flying these things. So the uh, the new rules, kind of the same as the old rules for hobbyists, but now they apply to commercial businesses, right? So we're talking about you can't fly higher than 400 feet. Same rule. Uh, yep, exactly. Uh, you can't fly faster than 100 miles an hour. Uh, you have to have line of sight. So you can't just send this thing off on a GPS track and then it disappears up over the mountains. Uh, 100 miles an hour is 
really fast. It is. Yeah. I mean, it's just hauling. And where any particular reason why they chose 100 miles an hour, do you know? Uh, you know, I'm not sure why it was 100 miles an hour. I know they had to put a speed limit on these things because you've probably seen the footage of these drone racing series. I mean, these guys are zipping around above 100 miles an hour, and uh, and it's kind of a sport. But the problem is you have helicopters that are up, and they're shooting a fire. They're shooting, you know, a, a crime scene. And as they're on their way, they could easily be traveling a good 100 miles an hour. you got a drone moving in the opposite direction, and those two hit. And that's that's a disaster. Yeah. So uh, they, they have to watch the speed on these things. Uh, what else? Uh, they can't weigh more than 55 pounds, including whatever cargo they carry. Again, does that... And that seems an arbitrary number, but you're right. They had to come up with something. And is it because they don't want, even though you can build drones very easily that carry a lot more than 55, is it uh, because they don't want delivery, for example? I think partially they want to ease into delivery more so than they don't want it. I think also partially they don't want people to start creating these behemoths that'll be up in the sky. They, they, they don't want basically a cloud of huge devices hovering above us. But when, when you talk about, for example, Amazon, they, they of course, had that much ballyhooed plan of uh, dropping off packages via drone to your front yard. They, um, I guess they want to slowly ease into that future, and this is a way to, to do it. You know, you, you open up the market share, you open up the enterprise channels, and eventually you're going to be able to, uh, to have that sort of service. Yeah, the big one, I think, certainly in my opinion, is that you no longer need a commercial pilot's license to fly a commercial drone. It never made sense to me to have a commercial pilot's license to fly a drone. You just need decent hand-to-eye coordination. Matter of fact, anybody who plays a video game decently is going to be a great pilot. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, I was talking to a commercial chopper pilot yesterday, and uh, and he was telling me, you know, you don't really need to have a pilot's license for this sort of thing. Uh, it it you know, it originally made sense because they didn't have the rules for it. But now all you got to do is you go to an FAA author, authorized uh, location, you take a test, you do a background check, and voila, you get a piece of paper that says, hey, you can go fly a drone. Now, the test is actually flying the drone, correct? Uh, the test that, I, from what I understand, it's just a paper test. So I have. So they've gone from commercial <laughs> pilot's license to here. Take a multiple choice test, and here's your license. <laughs> From what I understand, yeah. So, um, you know, it's not going to be quite the, hey, let's parallel park a drone while we're here, but uh, at least prove that you know the regulations. I think that's what they're most uh, well, interested in. It, it, let's go back to uh, you flying this thing. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they're easy to fly, aren't they? I mean, there's not much to it. How long does it take before you're competent in terms of sending this thing up in the sky? Yeah, You know, I, I mean, I just dabbled in the controls a little bit and was borderline terrified. Uh, I, I think it's one of those things, you know, you get a feel for it, just like anything else, whether it's driving or playing video games. And then, uh, and then as you move forward, you know, you feel that expertise. But there's always that caution period in between where you're brand new and you're paying attention to every last little detail. And then, of course, you're an expert because you get complacent and you have this place where you're like, yeah, I know what I'm doing. A gust of wind blows. Next thing you know, the uh, the drone's about to chop your face off. Oh, that's lovely. So um, when you fly this thing, as i looking around, uh, does, uh, you try to get it as close to you as possible. I was looking at that. And you go <laughs> from, it sits on top of your head like a, a headpiece, actually, or a helmet all the way up to 400 feet. Yeah, and it's amazing the speed at which these things move. So, I mean, you go from essentially getting a haircut and, it, you know, the whirring of the blades. I mean, it sounds like an angry beehive. It sounds like, you know, a, a, an electrified transmitter right above your head. And then suddenly it's just gone. It's way right. up in the 
the air. Now, as far as hobbyists are concerned, and I want to throw this at you, and I don't know if we've reached the point where those numbers are there, uh, there are parks in which people fly drones, yeah. right? And they're not licensed, but uh, re- uh, relegated areas. How do you keep from 50 drones smashing into each other? I, it's kind of the code of conduct, the almost unwritten code of conduct amongst the uh, hobbyists. You know, hey, you see a drone over there. Give them some space. Let's uh, let's try not to play games up here. You know, I uh, I live up by the Rose Bowl in Pasadena and go for walks there on a nightly basis. And there are always like two or three drones just hanging out right there because it's a nice open spot for people to play around. And uh, and you can tell, you know, I mean, they're communicating across the field. And that's part of why line of sight is so important, even with the commercial regulations. You know, CBS uh, reported last night that 600,000 drones are expected within a year, uh, commercially operated yeah. drones. You talk so about uh, that changes everything. Yeah, and I'm and the technology of these drones, and I'm assuming, for example, the fact that we don't have deliveries yet, and the uh, FAA is not allowing that, uh, is not a question of credibility, or it's not a question of technology, because you have collision avoidance technology there, and you drive your car, and certainly in terms of GPS, you can land it within inches. So, uh, are they simply waiting? And I don't know why they're waiting. Uh, if you could throw your uh, – give me some ideas on that one. Well, a couple of reasons why I think they're waiting. One, they want to see what the environment looks like once we start putting all these commercial drones into the air. So 600,000 sounds like a lot, but that's just a pittance compared to what would happen if we allow uh, delivery. Uh, secondarily, they also are looking at this from a security perspective. I mean, you get that many drones up in the air. Now you got to start worrying about them. I just moved here from D.C. You can't fly a single drone within the District of Columbia because it's a highly secure zone, right? And you talk about GPS. You can program one of these things to drop on a dime from you know 100 miles away and they want to be sure that they um they have a wrap on the security as well of these drones not just you know whether or not they're going to fly into other uh, aircraft or into buildings um and then you know the the other big thing that they got to watch out for when it comes to commercial drones is uh well they they need to make sure that that the operators across the board are skilled and once you start to introduce that many operators you know maybe we do need a, a test that's a little bit more robust maybe we do need to change these uh, regulations up fair enough uh chris thank you sir sure thing all right uh, coming up california passes a rape bill uh, because of the brock turner case and i'll explain that to you and you'd be surprised uh what the law is now this is kfi am 640 kfi am 640 KFI AM uh, 640 handle here, August 30th on a Tuesday. Uh, In light of uh, what happened with the Brock Turner rape case, it's going to be released on Friday. Uh, There's been such outrage uh, over the six-month jail term given to him uh, by Judge Persky. And uh, there's also a, uh, a pretty aggressive recall going on right now even though Persky has removed himself from all criminal cases onto the civil case, uh, on the civil calendar, uh, but it hasn't stopped the controversy. And the latest episode is that yesterday, uh, California lawmakers passed legislation in which uh, any kind of penetration or sexual abuse of uh, a woman or anybody who is unconscious or so intoxicated as to fail to give consent is rape. Now, this gets interesting. At this point, it's not rape. Turner was not convicted of rape. He was convicted of assault with intent to commit rape. 
He was convicted of assault, the penetration of an intoxicated person, foreign object, we don't know what it is, uh, and penetration of an unconscious person. And the reason he was not convicted of rape, because there was no penile penetration. A foreign object being inserted into the body of a human being is not considered rape, although imagine Uh, almost any foreign object uh, could do far, far more damage uh, than uh, traditional rape as we know it, uh, using uh, a body part uh, to it, your penis or their penis. And so uh, what's happening is uh, the legislature, and this is classic loophole, it really is, because when you think about it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense saying that's not rape, this is rape. So Assembly Bill uh, 2888 would... uh, tighten that up and according to uh, bill dodd who is a co-author of the legislation sexually assaulting an unconscious or intoxicated victim is a terrible crime and our laws need to reflect that and but it's uh, no opposition no serious opposition in the legislature was democratically controlled and here's what it does it eliminates a judge's discretion like persky took his discretion to only give brock turner six months that's it of which he did three or will do three as of uh, Friday, it would eliminate a judge's discretion to sentence defendants convicted of these crimes. So under the provisions under this new bill, Turner would have faced a minimum of three years behind bars. That's it. Couldn't do any less. And uh, another co-author, Santa Clara County DA Jeff Rosen, who was involved in this bill, said the measure is going to make California safer for women. I don't know if it's going to make it safer for women. I don't think there's going to be fewer rapes uh, because of this. Uh, But those who do commit are going to go to jail for a much longer period of time or at least uh, a minimum of three years. I mean, there are some judges that would give the maximum anyway. Uh, they call those hanging justice uh, judges. Other people call uh, these uh, judges uh, those who enforce existing law. So it uh, this case is making sure that the next Brock Turner does, in fact, uh, a minimum of three years in jail. Now, who's against this? Well, the ACLU. Why? Uh, because uh, according to the director of the group Center for Advocacy and Policy, uh, the well-intentioned minimum or mandatory minimum sentence this bill creates will have negative impacts on communities of color and other unintended consequences. First of all, I'd like to know what unintended consequences we're talking about. And uh, the issue, and I love this issue, of it has... uh, negative impacts on communities of color. You can argue that with that's any criminal law, any criminal law. If you have a stat in which African-Americans, in fact, are involved in more criminal violations and the stats are there. Now, I don't want to go into why, uh, societally speaking, because of oppression. And uh, we can go very, very deep into that argument. But if you look at the statistic, that African-Americans simply are involved in our justice systems in far greater numbers statistically than are whites or Asians, et cetera, then every one of the bills that makes it a crime to do anything has a negative impact on the communities of color. So what's the answer? 
either you uh, get rid of those laws or you say African-Americans will be held to a different standard or Hispanics will be held to a different standard. In other words, if a white person does three years in jail, then a person of color should only do two years in jail for violating the same crime. I don't know where the ACLU is going on this one. I truly don't. Really? Yeah, congratulations. The governor has not said he's gonna, whether he's going to sign it or not. He has not said, I'm signing this puppy. Do I think he's going to? Oh, you bet. I can't imagine him not signing this bill. Okay. Uh, and then there's a the whole issue of uh, judges' discretion, too, uh, because uh, mandatory sentences, uh, judges get a little upset because they're not allowed to handle cases uh, and make exceptions when they think it's appropriate. All right. Uh, coming up, the refugee story. I want to give you a, a little bit of history, a personal story, and uh, the it goes right into the presidential campaign, and I want to share with you that information. This is KFI AM 640.